Section one of The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Oxenhandler. Introduction The Era of Crowds. The great upheavals which precede changes of civilization, such as the fall of the Roman Empire and the foundation of the Arabian Empire, seem at first sight determined more especially by political transformations, foreign invasion, or the overthrow of dynasties. But a more attentive study of these events shows that behind their apparent causes, the real cause is generally seen to be a profound modification in the ideas of the peoples. The true historical upheavals are not those which astonish us by their grandeur and violence. The only important changes whence the renewal of civilizations results affect ideas, conceptions, and beliefs. The memorable events of history are the visible effects of the invisible changes of human thought. The reason these great events are so rare is that there is nothing so stable in a race as the inherited groundwork of its thoughts. The present epoch is one of these critical moments in which the thought of mankind is undergoing a process of transformation. Two fundamental factors are at the base of this transformation. The first is the destruction of those religious, political, and social beliefs in which all the elements of our civilization are rooted. The second is the creation of entirely new conditions of existence and thought as the result of modern scientific and industrial discoveries. The ideas of the past, although half-destroyed, being still very powerful, and the ideas which are to replace them being still in process of formation, the modern age represents a period of transition and anarchy. It is not easy to say as yet what will one day be evolved from this necessarily somewhat chaotic period. What will be the fundamental ideas on which the societies that are to succeed our own will be built up? We do not at present know. Still, it is already clear that on whatever lines the societies of the future are organized, they will have to count with a new power, with the last surviving sovereign force of modern times, the power of crowds. On the ruins of so many ideas formerly considered beyond discussion, and today decayed or decaying, of so many sources of authority that successive revolutions have destroyed, this power which alone has arisen in their stead seems soon destined to absorb the others. While all our ancient beliefs are tottering and disappearing, while the old pillars of society are giving way one by one, the power of the crowd is the only force that nothing menaces, and of which the prestige is continually on the increase. The age we are about to enter will in truth be the era of crowds. Scarcely a century ago the traditional policy of European states and the rivalries of sovereigns were the principal factors that shaped events. The opinion of the masses scarcely counted, and most frequently indeed did not count at all. Today it is the traditions which used to obtain in politics and the individual tendencies and rivalries of rulers which do not count, while on the contrary the voice of the masses has become preponderant. It is this voice that dictates their conduct to kings, whose endeavor is to take note of its utterances. The destinies of nations are elaborated at present in the heart of the masses and no longer in the councils of princes. The entry of the popular classes into political life, that is to say, in reality, their progressive transformation into governing classes, is one of the most striking characteristics of our epoch of transition. 
the introduction of universal suffrage which exercised for a long time but little influence is not as might be thought the distinguishing feature of this transference of political power the progressive growth of the power of the masses took place at first by the propagation of certain ideas which have slowly implanted themselves in men's minds and afterwards by the gradual association of individuals bent on bringing about the realization of theoretical conceptions it is by association that crowds have come to procure ideas with respect to their interests which are very clearly defined if not particularly just and have arrived at a consciousness of their strength the masses are founding syndicates before which the authorities capitulate one after the other they are also founding labor unions which in spite of all economic laws tend to regulate the conditions of labor and wages they return to assemblies in which the government is vested representatives utterly lacking initiative and independence and reduced most often to nothing else than the spokesmen of the committees that have chosen them Today the claims of the masses are becoming more and more sharply defined, and amount to nothing less than a determination to utterly destroy society as it now exists, with the view to making it hark back to that primitive communism which was the normal condition of all human groups before the dawn of civilization. Limitations of the hours of labor, the nationalization of mines, railways, factories, and the soil— the equal distribution of all products, the elimination of all the upper classes for the benefit of the popular classes, etc. Such are these claims. Little adapted to reasoning, crowds, on the contrary, are quick to act. As the result of their present organization, their strength has become immense. The dogmas whose birth we are witnessing will soon have the force of the old dogmas, that is to say, the tyrannical and sovereign force of being above discussion. The divine right of the masses is about to replace the divine right of kings. The writers who enjoy the favor of our middle classes, those who best represent their rather narrow ideas, their somewhat prescribed views, their rather superficial skepticism, and their at times somewhat excessive egoism, display profound alarm at this new power which they see growing. And to combat this disorder in men's minds, they are addressing despairing appeals to those moral forces of the church for which they formerly professed so much disdain. They talk to us of the bankruptcy of science, go back in penitence to Rome, and remind us of the teachings of revealed truth. These new converts forget that it is too late. Had they been really touched by grace, a like operation could not have the same influence on minds less concerned with the preoccupations which beset these recent adherents to religion. The masses repudiate today the gods which their admonishers repudiated yesterday and helped to destroy. There is no power, divine or human, that can oblige a stream to flow back to its source. There has been no bankruptcy of science, and science has had no share in the present intellectual anarchy nor in the making of the new power which is springing up in the midst of this anarchy. Science promised us truth, or at least a knowledge of such relations as our intelligence can seize. It never promised us peace or happiness. Sovereignly indifferent in our feelings, it is deaf to our lamentations. It is for us to endeavor to live with science, since nothing can bring back the illusions it has destroyed. Universal symptoms, visible in all nations, show us the rapid growth of the power of crowds, and do not admit of our supposing that it is 
destined to cease growing at an early date whatever fate it may reserve for us we shall have to submit to it all reasoning against it is a mere vain war of words certainly it is possible that the advent of power of the masses marks one of the last stages of western civilization a complete return to those periods of confused anarchy which seem always destined to precede the birth of every new society but may this result be prevented up to now these thoroughgoing destructions of a worn-out civilization have constituted the most obvious task of the masses it is not indeed to-day merely that this can be traced history tells us that from the moment when the moral forces on which a civilization rested have lost their strength its final dissolution is brought about by those unconscious and brutal crowds known justifiably enough as barbarians civilizations as yet have only been created and directed by a small intellectual aristocracy never by crowds crowds are only powerful for destruction their rule is always tantamount to a barbarian phase a civilization involves fixed rules discipline a passing from the instinctive to the rational state forethought for the future an elevated degree of culture all of them conditions that crowds left to themselves have invariably shown themselves incapable of realizing in consequence of the purely destructive nature of their power crowds act like those microbes which hasten the dissolution of enfeebled or dead bodies when the structure of a civilization is rotten it is always the masses that bring about its downfall it is at such a juncture that their chief mission is plainly visible and that for a while the philosophy of number seems the only philosophy of history is the same fate in store for our civilization there is ground to fear that this is the case but we are not as yet in a position to be certain of it however this may be we are bound to resign ourselves to the reign of the masses since want of foresight has in succession overthrown all the barriers that might have kept the crowd in check we have a very slight knowledge of these crowds which are beginning to be the object of so much discussion professional students of psychology having lived far from them have always ignored them and when as of late they have turned their attention in this direction it has only been to consider the crimes crowds are capable of committing without a doubt criminal crowds exist but virtuous and heroic crowds and crowds of many other kinds are also to be met with the crimes of crowds only constitute a particular phase of their psychology the mental constitution of crowds is not to be learnt merely by a study of their crimes any more than that of an individual by a mere description of his vices however in point of fact all the world's masters all of the founders of religion or empires the apostles of all beliefs eminent statesmen and in a more modest sphere the mere chiefs of small groups of men have always been unconscious psychologists possessed of an instinctive and often very sure knowledge of the character of crowds and it is their accurate knowledge of this character that has enabled them to so easily establish their mastery napoleon had a marvellous insight into the psychology of the masses of the country over which he reigned but he at times completely misunderstood the psychology of crowds belonging to other races footnote his most subtle advisers moreover did not understand this psychology any better talleyrand wrote him that spain would receive his soldiers as liberators it received them as beasts of prey a psychologist acquainted with the hereditary instincts of the spanish race would have easily foreseen this reception 
End of footnote. And it is because he thus misunderstood it that he engaged in Spain, and notably in Russia, in conflicts in which his power received blows which were destined within a brief space of time to ruin it. A knowledge of the psychology of crowds is today the last resource of the statesman who wishes not to govern them. That is becoming a very difficult matter, but at any rate not to be too much governed by them. It is only by obtaining some sort of insight into the psychology of crowds that it can be understood how slight is the action upon them of laws and institutions, how powerless they are to hold any opinions other than those which are imposed upon them, and that it is not with rules based on theories of pure equity that they are to be led, but by seeking what produces an impression on them, and what seduces them. For instance, should a legislator, wishing to impose a new tax, choose that which would be theoretically the most just? By no means. In practice the most unjust may be the best for the masses. Should it at the same time be the least obvious, and apparently the least burdensome, it will be the most easily tolerated. It is for this reason that an indirect tax, however exorbitant it be, will always be accepted by the crowd, because, being paid daily in fractions of a farthing on objects of consumption, it will not interfere with the habits of the crowd, and will pass unperceived. Replace it by a proportional tax on wages or income of any other kind, to be paid in a lump sum, and were this new imposition theoretically ten times less burdensome than the other, it would give rise to unanimous protest. This arises from the fact that a sum relatively high, which will appear immense, and will in consequence strike the imagination, has been substituted for the unperceived fractions of a farthing. The new tax would only appear light had it been saved farthing by farthing, but this economic proceeding involves an amount of foresight of which the masses are incapable. The example which precedes is of the simplest. Its appositeness will be easily perceived. It did not escape the attention of such a psychologist as Napoleon, but our modern legislators, ignorant as they are of the characteristics of a crowd, are unable to appreciate it. Experience has not taught them as yet to a sufficient degree that men never shape their conduct upon the teaching of pure reason. Many other practical applications might be made of the psychology of crowds. A knowledge of this science throws the most vivid light on a great number of historical and economic phenomena totally incomprehensible without it. I shall have occasion to show that the reason why the most remarkable of modern historians, Taine, has at times so imperfectly understood the events of the great French Revolution is that it never occurred to him to study the genius of crowds. He took as his guide in the study of this complicated period the descriptive method resorted to by naturalists, but the moral forces are almost absent in the case of the phenomena which naturalists have to study. Yet it is precisely these forces that constitute the true mainsprings of history. In consequence, merely looked at from its practical side, the study of the psychology of crowds deserved to be attempted, were its interest that resulting from pure curiosity only, it would still merit attention. It is as interesting to decipher the motives of the actions of men as to determine the characteristics of a mineral or a plant. Our study of the genius of crowds can merely be a brief synthesis, a simple summary of our investigations. Nothing more must be demanded of it than a few suggestive views. Others will work the ground more thoroughly. Today we only touch the surface of a still almost virgin soil.
End of Introduction